Why did the main representative of Israel's case at the ICJ spend one third of his precious time, a full 18 minutes, never mentioning genocide or Gaza or the war and its reasons? Instead, he spoke almost endlessly about points that happened before the case was ever at the court. He goes on and on about when South Africa wrote to Israel and on what date. Who cares? Interestingly, the media didn't pick up on it. Not Al Jazeera, not the Times of Israel. And I didn't listen to it properly. I, I flicked through it very briefly. That sounds very strange. It was actually a clever move. But we do have to realise there's a judge there from Morocco, from Somalia, from Lebanon, right? The judge from Lebanon is hardly likely to vote pro-Israel and go back home and explain his decision to a government which half of which is made up of Hezbollah. And therefore, equally, the idea that the casualty rate of civilian to terrorists is two to one is irrelevant. That's a proportionality argument. It's not a defense against genocidal accusations. Welcome to History for the Curious. I'm Mena Reisner, and I host the internationally renowned lecturer, dynamic historian, and tour guide, Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Experience our history, confront dilemmas, and reveal the untold stories of 3,000 years of Jewish heritage. From Paris to Cairo, from the Russian Tsar to Maimonides, and from the Sinai Revelation to the French Revolution. Join the fastest-growing Jewish history podcast in the world by subscribing to this channel and discovering the events that have shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. As promised, this is going to be a shorter episode. And although we have ended the Yishmael versus Yisrael series, the new legal developments and the questions of the last two weeks at the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, have brought us back to this topic, especially as the points are harder to define than the other areas of the war, and because we've put such a strong focus on Hasbara and answering the questions that are on everyone's mind. Yep, very much so. And therefore, much of what I will say comes from... I would say, detailed conversations I had with a barrister, a criminal law barrister, and a Jewish professor of international criminal law, and with interviews from the UK lawyers for Israel. Now, South Africa's latest anti-Israel move is, as we know, to lobby the International Court of Justice in The Hague and sponsor basically a modern blood libel against Israel. And Equally problematically, this will fuel the fires of anti-Semitism around the world. So this 84-page submission demands that the court force Israel to immediately suspend its war against Hamas. Before we go any further, can you just briefly explain the difference between the International Criminal Court and the International Court of Justice, which are both in the Hague, I believe, yes. and... Right. Different organizations. ICJ versus ICC. We'll start with the International Criminal Court. There, individuals are put on trial by, I guess, the world, you could say, unlike the ICJ. And it was of a much later creation from the late 1980s. And from the word go, Israel saw both in the composition of the court and the charter of the ICC that its direction was not something that Israel wanted to be part of. They never signed up to be a member, neither did the USA. And that means that the ICC has no jurisdiction over Israel. 
although it can get messy if people from Israel step foot on foreign soil. And this has been contentious in the past. Our slightly older listeners may remember that General Pinochet from Chile was arrested in London in 1998 on charges which were advanced by Spain and Belgium and France. Now, the ICC declared in 2019 that they are satisfied that war crimes are being committed by Israel and that they do have jurisdiction over what they call the occupied territories because Palestinians live there and it is land that has been taken from them. Even though, to give you an idea, Australia, Austria, Brazil, Canada, the Czech Republic, Germany, Hungary and others all submitted a counter-petition to the court saying the ICC do not have jurisdiction in international law there because Palestine isn't a country and it's unheard of for the ICC to give itself powers. And therefore, from Israel's perspective, the ICC is what Jews would actually term a criminal court, by which I mean a court made up of criminals, whereas the ICJ is the court for countries. It's only ruled on about 190 cases in the past 80 years, and it is called into play either when two countries are linked by a treaty and ask it to render a legal opinion, or when the UN asks for legal guidance. So you're saying that the two countries in question, which obviously here are South Africa and Israel, are linked by a treaty? Yes, you want to know where this treaty is. And what it is. Okay, so... South Africa has accused Israel at the ICJ of genocide. And in this very particular accusation, not only are many countries signatories to the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, but in addition, the ICJ has made it known that this charge of genocide can be brought by any signatory country against any other signatory country under Article 9, even if they are not a party to the conflict, which means Israel has accepted the jurisdiction of the ICJ in relation to this area. And this was made clear by the ICJ in a case between Gambia and Myanmar which is also obviously about genocide. And that is why South Africa has to use that particular charge against Israel. There's no other way for them to bring a case, meaning they would dearly have loved to be able to accuse Israel of sort of lesser crimes, which are still major, uh, like general war crimes. But they have no ability to force a hearing of that case. It's none of their business, basically. Genocide officially is everyone's business. Is there any reason why South Africa sort of came out of nowhere with this claim, particularly that country, which is basically a global irrelevance in the Middle East? We'll get there. To note that, obviously, it's exceptionally grotesque that South Africa is using, abusing the term genocide, which was made to define, obviously, the systematic extermination of Jews by the Nazis in the Holocaust. But South Africa argues that the quote-unquote crime of Israel is so monstrous that South Africa is simply fulfilling its moral obligations. It's a state party to the UN Convention, and it, it's compelled to undertake this action to prevent genocide anywhere in the world. In other words, you you know, South Africa is doing this because of its moral responsibility to be a force for good and root out evil. I'll translate that last paragraph into English. 
South African government are a bunch of anti-Semitic lowlives who found a convenient way to attack Jews and Israel. And their real goals, I mean, they're various, but the most immediate to South Africa is the hope that by creating political anti-Israel propaganda, South Africa will earn economic rewards from the surrounding Arab countries. And, of course, South Africa is desperate to divert attention currently from the enormous corruption and instability in South Africa, especially with a general election there in May. It might not be known to our listeners, 75 people a day are murdered in South Africa, a thousand people are assaulted there every week, and this rate is the highest in South Africa for the past 20 years. So clearly the government there is doing an unbelievable job in its own backyard of being a a moral beacon, and they need to, you know, earn brownie points. Now, South Africa's application is unprecedented because what it wants the court to order is that Israel be prevented from defending its own civilian population against Hamas terrorists through a ceasefire. Because this, and it's important to understand this, Hamas would not have to be a party to this. They wouldn't have to engage in a ceasefire, only Israel. As far as the ICJ is concerned, Hamas can do what it likes. You continue your missile attacks. It's not ruling on both parties of the war. It's ruling simply on the accusation made by a member state, South Africa, against another, Israel, which means that as far as South Africa is concerned, if the outcome of the case is that Hamas can carry on murdering Jews, no problem, because at no stage in their case against Israel did they condemn Hamas. And as the South Africa injustice minister put it, no matter what some individuals within the group of Palestine and Gaza may have done, and no matter how great the threat to Israeli citizens may be, that's not relevant. So, you know, obviously South Africa is motivated only by the forces of kindness and goodness, and they love Jews. And that's why this is dangerous. But why would you say it's dangerous if the accusation itself is so absurd? I mean, does the case have any legs to stand on at all? Okay, so let's first speak about the things that everybody takes to be absurd because of what we know. Well, perhaps start with the legal definition. The legal definition of genocide is not up for debate. Genocide is, and I quote, the intention to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group. And therefore, that appears to be an absurd accusation to be making against Israel. And we know that uh, basically all the defamatory quotes of Israeli ministers and leaders advocating the destruction of Palestinians are either taking these quotes out of context or misrepresenting the statements as relating to Palestinian civilians rather than Hamas terrorists or being made by people who are not the decision makers, even if these people, were they to be in power, might want to do something that is not being done at the moment. But that's irrelevant. They're not part of the war cabinet. Many of the pro-Palestinian voices have spoken about Amalek. Yes. Okay. So the Amalek quote from Netanyahu, which I was going to get to, we'll quote now. I'll give you something that he said on the 28th of October. We are now entering the second phase of the war. Its objectives are clear. The destruction of the military and governmental capabilities of Hamas and the return of the hostages back home. Remember what Amalek has done to you. We remember, and we are fighting to defeat the murderous enemy and secure existence in our land. The IDF is the most moral army in the world. The IDF rather does everything to avoid harming the uninvolved. 
Now, that puts the Amolic quote in context. So, you know, you think to yourself, well, that's obvious. And or equally, that Israel's military actions are being grossly distorted because clearly every state's primary obligation is to keeping its citizens safe. So over the last three months, why is Israel in Gaza? It's been defending its citizens from terrorists who have been there for the past 17 years and who since 7th October have continued their attacks firing over 10,000 rockets targeting the Israeli civilian population, which is why the US government has said that this submission is meritless. It's counterproductive and completely without any basis in fact whatsoever. And Canada and Germany, post the preliminary case, have said the same, although Canada has now backtracked. So all of that, however, let's deal with the other side of things, which is really the main purpose that I wanted to put out this podcast for. It is by far not an easy run for Israel. There are very real obstacles, almost insurmountable ones. Let's go back a little bit in time. In the last ICJ ruling about Israel, which is in 2004, the ICJ found against Israel for building, you know, the barrier, the fence, and said that military necessity was deemed insufficient reason to build a barrier. But they didn't give a reason as to why it was insufficient reason. And this was noted by the dissenting opinion at the ICJ of the 15 judges, 14 found against Israel, only the USA found in favor. But basically, the ICJ arrived at a conclusion without giving reason. And the fact that there was a large reduction in incidents in terror in Israel as a result of the fence was basically ignored. So the first thing to understand is don't expect logic and facts and morality alone to create the ICJ's decision. As an additional quote, in 2004, the court found that the needs of national security were not applicable in the present case. It was not convinced that the specific course Israel had chosen for the wall was necessary to obtain its security objectives, and it couldn't rely on self-defense as an argument. And that's very worrying right? Secondly, at this stage in the proceedings in The Hague, there was no need for South Africa to prove a case of genocide as such. They only needed to show that it was a plausible possibility, nowhere near beyond reasonable doubt. A question I've had since I saw that the proceedings are happening in the ICJ is that genocide is almost impossible to prove whilst a war is going on. I mean, Obviously, there you can have an exception in the case of the Holocaust, which was one of the worst genocides in history. But generally, with war and many people being killed on both sides. How do you judge genocide? Yeah. Okay. So we can approach this, I guess, in various ways, perhaps to start this way. In law in general, crimes or criminal law, crimes require both actus reus and mens rea which means there needs to be proof that the action was committed and that there was intention. In genocide, the bar of proof is higher. You need to prove that the crime, let's say, of killing, which was intended and committed, was actually part of a broader intent, perhaps a more sinister intent, which is to carry out a macro crime. Because otherwise, while it could still be called a war crime, this killing, or crimes against humanity, it is not genocide, and therefore the case can't be brought by South Africa. But the point is, harm itself happening to others isn't enough 
to be called genocide. It has to be the intention meikora from the beginning. So South Africa need to show, perhaps, that although there is a military campaign, it is plausible to say that Israel's intent alongside the military campaign is totally unjustifiable acts which are genocidal in in intent. South Africa doesn't have to prove that they intend killing every Palestinian in Gaza, but that their intent is genocidal. And the idea at this stage is not to determine Israel's guilt in those two days of hearings, but to impose provisional measures upon them, like the ceasefire, to make sure that they don't continue what they're doing. It's only at the later stage of proceedings, at the merit case, does there need to be a persuasive argument which is fully conclusive of the arguments made. And to be accused of intent of genocide, there are four possibilities to which, astonishingly, death isn't necessary for it to be genocide. The four are as follows. The first is killing or causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. The second is deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life which are calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or part. And potentially you could say that this occurs when large populations are transferred from their cities without adequate food and shelter, etc., right? There is the imposing measures which are intended to prevent births within a group, and there's forcibly transferring children of one group to another group. In Srebrenica, they prevented the women having children. That was genocide without murder per se. So the broader intent doesn't have to involve numbers. Numbers just show how successful at genocide they've been, but not about their intent. And therefore, equally, the idea that the casualty rate of civilian to terrorist is two to one is irrelevant. That's a proportionality argument. It's not a defense against genocidal accusations. The question on the table is intent, although there obviously has to be a convergence between action and purpose. It can't be a minister saying, let's nuke Gaza. And this has to be directed to a group of people. So, for example, Gaza would be considered a group, correct? Because I've heard a lot of the Israeli defences, we can't be accused of genocide due to, I mean, look at the West Bank, look at Jerusalem as a place where Arabs are living happily. So we'll get to there, but in certain ways, you could say that Israel intends targeting all Palestinians and that Israeli Palestinians perhaps could be put in a separate category, but definitely West Bank and Gaza if they could be put in one whole, are all being targeted for this same genocidal intent. So, so far we've understood that, first of all, the ICJ are not a pro-Israel organization, and second of all, that South Africa doesn't have to properly prove its case yet. Then there is the fact that some of the arguments put forward cannot be used to prove a lack of genocidal intent. For instance, the argument that if Israel were to be interested in genocide, they would just carpet bomb Gaza and not send in their own troops. The pushback to that would be someone like Putin. He's got nuclear weapons. He's got an air force. He could carpet bomb Kiev, and he hasn't. Not using all of your arsenal doesn't prove non-genocidal intent. Equally inadmissible as a proof is saying, well, Israel had no intention and no plans on the 6th of October to carry out any attack, so clearly they are peace-loving. 
It doesn't. It doesn't conclusively prove that Israel is not genocidal because the intent is the question. Maybe whenever they had opportunity, they would do so. Now, obviously, it is a factor how much Israel has pursued peace. It's a factor. And the more converging lines you have to build your case, the more the charges of genocide are absurd. It's the same as we spoke about when it came to Holocaust denial. That was our answer in part two, the converging lines. And we all know for instance, that in this war that there are, for instance, no claims of uh, any real claims of any physical violence by soldiers to Palestinian civilians within Gaza in the past two months. And we know that all military operations are undertaken only after legal approval and that casualties near or in hospitals are basically because Hamas is embedded in those places for which there is proof. In other words, normally you'd prove genocidal intent from the unforgivable acts of bombing places of refuge and rescue. And here, quite clearly, there's a different reason for it. We also know that millions of leaflets have been dropped and the IDF has an Arab Twitter account to warn civilians. And you mentioned Netanyahu before about Amalek, which you explained very well, but there have been other government ministers that have made some sort of genocidal comment. As I said, there has to be a converging line between what they've said and what the Israeli army have then done, so to speak, to act on this person's wording. Otherwise, it's rhetoric. It's irrelevant. It's like in World War II. Churchill didn't say we're at war against the Nazis. He said we're at war against the Germans. And, and proceeded to carpet bomb Dresden. Yes, but for an aim that was proven not to be genocidal, um, etc. And as Israel said at the ICJ, they are now allowing through 105 trucks a day of aid. Before the 7th of October, there were 70 trucks a day going through. So it does show non-genocidal intent. In other words, all of the points that I've just made, the Nazis never did any of those things for the Jews. Perhaps to give you a demonstration of how it would have been, you know, halavai, any of these things would have been done for the Jews by their enemy in the Second World War. And in terms of the past, you know, for many decades, Israel has provided free provision, basically, of water and electricity. They've treated Palestinians patients in their hospitals, right? So, and Israel isn't an ethno-state, unlike, for instance, the Maldives and other places. It can be seen not simply by the fact that Israeli Arabs live as citizens, but even in the disputed territories, take Ramallah, there are five-star hotels there, and it allows workers in from the Gaza Strip. And in each one of these areas, whether Gaza or the West Bank or in Israel itself, the Arab numbers have climbed continuously over the past decades. So, you know, you can claim that Israel is maybe over-militarized, but that's got no common ground with the concept of genocide. And from the opposite perspective, there's no question that the Hamas intent is genocidal from everything you've explained. Yes, it's quite clear that on the few occasions that they've been given some allowance, they've seized it uh, with both hands. But... Uh, and here is more bad news. Even though Hamas has carried out genocide and it's in Hamas's charter, the genocidal intent, it's not as relevant to the case because they are not um, what are called state actors. They're not countries. And therefore, they are treated differently by international law for the very simple reason that the 1945 law regarding genocide was made to prevent states committing genocide like Germany. And in fact, this was brought up specifically by South Africa at the ICJ. Don't ask, why didn't South Africa bring a case against Hamas? Because we can't. So you're saying there's almost an irrelevance, even if you would call them genocidal, there's nothing that could be done practically as a result. In the ICJ, they're not a country. 
Um, so, you know, from a logical perspective, it all makes sense. I mean, but you're saying that there are factors which work very much against Israel. Yeah, I mean, I'd add to that that the case has been presented in such a distorted way that you need to be determined, very determined, in order to side with Israel. Vaughan Lowe, uh, one of the British KC, as an example, said that Israel can't claim self-defense because it's still an occupying force, even in Gaza, because Gaza has no airport or seaport, and therefore it's as if it's linked to Israel's territory. Now, he later in his presentation basically lied and did so knowingly when he said that Israel bombs indiscriminately and that Israel has targeted hospitals and in many of the accusations he made towards the end of his presentation. But he came across very well. And he's a hypocrite because in 2005 he wrote, and I quote, the right of self-defense is a right to use force to avert an attack. The source of the attack, whether a state or a non-state actor, is irrelevant to the existence of that right. I mean, maybe more accurately, he's an opportunist because he wants a paycheck. And perhaps this trial in the long term will expose the hypocrisy of the legal field in the same way as the educational Ivy League university's hypocrisy has been um, exposed. And, you know, perhaps looking at the ICJ itself, of the 15 judges on the ICJ, there is an unbelievable irony about Russia being there. It completely ignored an ICJ ruling regarding the war in Ukraine last year, well, 2022. And that was a ruling with 13 judges finding against Russia and only two ruling in favor on the issue of genocide and the request for a ceasefire. And who voted with Russia? China. And China didn't do so because it saw merit in Russia's arguments, but for completely political reasons. So the court is hostage to totally non-legal and almost unlawful interpretations of international law based completely on the judge's self-interest. And Russia, by the way, is the deputy president of the ICJ. So why did Israel turn up to the ICJ now? I mean, they didn't back in 2004, the last time they were called there. Why is this different? There are a couple of reasons. One is it's too serious to skip, especially because the word genocide, which has not been used really in a Western context since the Second World War, Israel would be the first Western country to find itself accused of it. Now, okay, it would be astonishing if it were to be found that Israel was genocidal by a majority, like especially a large majority, because it would limit the ability almost forever for countries to attack terrorists, even if they attack them first. So, you know, there's a recognized Article 51 of the UN Charter says that every country has a right to self-defense. But having said that, in certain ways, Israel has already lost because the purpose of the case from South Africa's perspective, beyond that which we mentioned earlier, is to have the media mention the word genocide and Israel over and over for weeks on end, not to win the case. It would be ideal for South Africa if they could, I don't know, make the sales of weapons to Israel conditional. And the absolute prize would be to get a majority ruling demanding a ceasefire. But that's not the main target. And so you're saying it's unlikely Israel will win? No. I would think that Israel will win with a narrow majority because of this concept of self-defense and because of the concept that otherwise certain countries themselves might find themselves in hot water. But we do have to realize there's a judge there from Morocco, from Somalia, from Lebanon, right? The judge from Lebanon is hardly likely to vote pro-Israel and go back home and explain his decision to a government which half of which is made up of Hezbollah. 
not going to happen, right? And you've got, uh, I don't know, China, Uganda. So we are, I would say, we would say a, a narrow majority for Israel is the likely outcome, but it isolates Israel. I remember in 1991 during the Gulf War, uh, Ramesh Shapiro Zetzel told us that Israel had been told to sit quiet. They weren't allowed to retaliate against Iraq, even though Israel was being bombed. And he said, and what would happen if severe damage is done to Eretz Israel by an enemy that was not an immediate neighbor of Israel? So you couldn't invade it. The only real retaliation would be to use a nuclear weapon. And it would be the first time since the Holocaust, that nuclear, World War II, that nuclear weapons had been used. And the Jews would now be mass murderers. And now, similarly, we are essentially the first Western nation to be accused of genocide. You walk down the street and people will point and say, those are the Jews. There'll be textbooks written about us. It's a blood libel. Not that we're Christ killers, but child killers. And it's very similar to the blood libels and the disputations with similar results and on similar basis. In other words, none at all. And so to speak, there's an allied reason why they went to the ICJ this time, unlike 2004, which is that... The world, especially in certain quarters, is fed up of the Jews having this constant pity card they can use about genocide from the Holocaust. Yeah, it's true the Jews might have lost a third of its people because we were 18 million in 1939, but it's very annoying uh, because they have this great argument to the world. They were the, the largest victims and indeed the only victims of a genocide by a first world country, which was carried out not for land or political power, very different to most of the others. And, you know, people have a sympathy on the Jews. And the only real way to change that once and for all is to accuse the Jews of that very crime. It robs them of all moral authority. It undermines their very existence, everything that has been said in the past 75 years. So it's a very far-reaching accusation, and it is recognized by our enemies as that. Don't think it's a coincidence. Very powerful point. Right. And the hypocrisy to do so is breathtaking and the distortion of the truth. At the ICJ, Israel, or rather South Africa rather, advanced the argument for genocide by saying that the Erez crossing is closed between Israel and Gaza. Yes, it is closed. You know why? Because Hamas attacked it, murdered the Kogat people there and damaged the entire structure. And of course, there was no mention in South Africa's submission of Hamas being embedded amongst civilians, etc., etc. This accusation is the ultimate in wickedness, you could say. It's the very worst that a country can be accused of. And this is the third part of the assault. There was the 7th of October attack. There was the hostages and the soldiers and the continued rockets and the attempted isolation. And the legal side of things started with Durban 1 in 2001 and then BDS. And now we have this. So, you know, all in all, the anti-Semitism of the uh, majority players in the UN and the Human Rights Commission in the UN and the World Health Organization has now been brought into the ICJ, another organization, and by an outside player. So it's uh, difficult. And it's important to note, by the way, if Israel was found guilty, not just at the preliminary stage, but at the merit stage, that would mean that all signatories to the ICJ would have to cease being complicit with Israel. They would not be able to supply them arms if Israel is using it for genocide. And this type of outcome internationally did not exist in the 2004 case when no other countries would have had consequences. So, you know, it's another reason why Israel didn't show up then. 
One last thing to end with, which is important and has gone seemingly unnoticed, Malcolm Shaw was one of the barristers representing Israel at the ICJ. And he spoke for 54 minutes, yet at times he seemed to be rambling. What do you mean by rambling? Why did the main representative of Israel's case at the ICJ spend one third of his precious time, a full 18 minutes, never mentioning genocide or Gaza or the war and its reasons? Instead, he spoke almost endlessly about points that happened before the case was ever at the court. He goes on and on about when South Africa wrote to Israel and on what date. Who cares? Interestingly, the media didn't pick up on it. Not Al Jazeera, not the Times of Israel. When I didn't listen to it properly, I, I flicked through it very briefly, but it sounds very strange. It was actually a clever move. As I mentioned, Israel is in a difficult place with this case and hopes to squeeze through with a narrow majority. But even the ICJ itself isn't ecstatic about having to handle the case. Because of the various judges and various countries who are signatories to the court, they are worried what happens if this comes back to bite them. They find themselves on the uh, horns of a dilemma. If the court finds against Israel, it is undermining one of the very fundamentals of the UN Charter, a country's right to self-defence, as we mentioned earlier. It means, from now on, every time terrorists attack a country and then hide amongst civilians, they will be immune to reprisals. You know, once embedded, they become untouchable, and not only terrorists. On the other hand, for the court as a large majority to find for Israel is almost unthinkable. This is, after all, a UN agency which is systemically biased against Israel, and Israel has now been accused of the, you know, greatest crime possible. So what Malcolm Shaw did was to offer them a way out that would allow them to avoid the issue altogether and give the ability, firstly, for the court to rule quickly and therefore limit the amount of time that this word genocide gets repeated over and over again in public, on the news, etc., but also for Israel not to be subjected, you know, to a potential loss at the ICJ at the preliminary stage by throwing out the case without ruling on it. The court would, in essence, say that there is no legal dispute between South Africa and Israel, and therefore the ICJ can't rule. But what is the legal basis of this? I mean, there's clearly a very obvious dispute. OK, so let's hear his words at the court. He said as follows. I turn to the question of jurisdiction of the court in the matter before us. Article 9 makes it conditional on the existence of a dispute. Whether or not a dispute exists at the time of the filing of the application is a matter for determination by the court, and it is a matter of substance, not of form or procedure. The court, and he quotes will take into account, in particular, any statement or documents exchanged between the parties. And he goes on to say, unilateral assertion does not suffice. There needs to be some element of engagement between the parties. This point has been consistently noted by the court. And he quotes again, it must be shown that the claim of one party is positively opposed by the other. The court further referred in the Marshall Island cases to the need that the respondents should, quote again, not be deprived of the opportunity to react before the institution of proceedings to the claim made against its own conduct. 
and therefore he explains, where a state makes an assertion concerning the conduct of another state, which is what South Africa did against Israel, it must give the latter, Israel, a reasonable opportunity to respond before resorting to litigation, particularly in a matter of such severity as an accusation of genocide, and particularly before a court of this standing. What did South Africa do? Nothing of the sort. South Africa cites only a couple of general public statements by Israel and a publicity release from the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs. These responses were not addressed directly or even indirectly to South Africa, and no relevant exchange between the parties occurred. Shaw then says that Professor Dugard, who was representing South Africa, explained that South Africa had voiced its concerns in the Security Council, and at that point it became clear that there was a serious dispute between the two states. Besides, Professor Dugard declared that special considerations apply to the existence of disputes when using Article 9 of the Genocide Convention, without telling us what those possible special considerations could be. And now we come, as he put it, to the rather bizarre story of the exchange of notes between the two countries. On the 21st of December, South Africa sent a note verbal to Israel raising its concerns about genocide in Gaza. The application to the ICJ then states that, from South Africa's perspective, what happened next? Israel has not responded directly to South Africa's note verbal. Said Malcolm Shaw, this is untrue. Israel did respond that very day, and South Africa confirmed the next day that it had received the message. And then on the 27th of December, the Israeli embassy sent to South Africa by email a note verbal suggesting a meeting. An attempt by the Israeli embassy to hand-deliver the note was refused due to a national holiday, and the South African Department of International Relations specifically advised the embassy on the 28th of December to hand-deliver the note and wait till the 2nd of January. In other words, Israel should hold off delivering any response to South Africa till the 2nd of January. So basically, while everyone's on holiday, they couldn't respond. Yes, except for one thing. Then South Africa gives in its application to the ICJ on the 29th of December. Well, In other words, before Israel had time to respond and before, you know, there was a possibility of doing anything about it. Meaning that the attempt by the state of Israel in good faith to open a dialogue and discuss South Africa's concerns was willfully, duplicitously and deceitfully sidestepped by South Africa. And as Shaw put it, this is not a dispute, it's a unispute. It's one hand clapping. South Africa's claim of involvement is, of course, based on its moral duty, and there's no bias or self-interest, but it's behaved immorally, not just in the case itself, but how it went about doing so. And then, in January, on the 10th of January, South Africa basically realises that it's going to get into trouble, so it said... There's no point, it wrote to Israel saying there's no point in a meeting and didn't give reasons for it, which are curious, to put it mildly. So they had made up their minds before. They were not interested in engagement. And never mind that. They would have to have already had the whole filing written out beforehand. This takes days to put together. It's an 84-page booklet. 
So South Africa decided unilaterally that there was a dispute, irrespective of Israel's conciliatory response. They didn't give Israel a reasonable opportunity to engage with it. And they filed something which they'd had in the works for a while, which means that the court could theoretically throw the whole thing out the window and avoid having to rule on the merits or demerits of the actual case. The ICJ could still choose that way out. Now, this might not help. This is, you know, a possibility. It's a very clever piece of Talmudic reasoning and no one has noticed. But on the other hand, we still do not know what will happen. Incredible. I mean, when you describe it, the level of illogical reasoning and the fact that the like you said the judges from russia and, and lebanon the only thing we have is the daman i mean when you look at the uh the videos in the court and all the eloquent arguments put forward by the israeli side and you're thinking what's really the point to whom to whom that's yeah. a brick wall but, yeah so it might have swayed one or two judges and in the press who knows I mean, it's definitely a reason to see It's clear that there is so much hatred out there that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is central to our future. I mean, we saw it localized, so to speak, within Israel. We're now seeing it on the world stage. And, you know, just by the way, though this has got nothing to do specifically with, with the ICJ and uh, the case, there's something I came across which needs mentioning, and that is the absolute solidarity between Black Lives Matter, the black movement in the USA, and the Palestinians, and their praise of Hamas. It is absurd for a reason that no one is necessarily aware of. It was Western European, mainly British pressure, that was the main force acting on the Ottoman Empire to suppress the slave trade which only ended in most Arab countries in the 20th century, in Iran in 1929, in Saudi Arabia and Oman in 1962, meaning the white colonialists were the ones to release the blacks from Muslim oppression in the 20th century. (laughs) Very ironic. Yeah, no one remembers that. Well, Rabbi Hirsch, thank you very much. That was another fascinating episode. Please subscribe so you don't miss another one. And Send all your questions or your feedback to podcast at jaylee.org.uk. I usually tell the listeners to share, but I think these episodes in particular are very important. Any little bit of Hishtadlis we can do to, to show people the truth is helpful and uh, can't be underestimated the impact that logical reasoning can have. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch. <laughs>